The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. I'm biotech columnist Tim Borum, and welcome to another edition of Health Kick, the podcast series that unlocks the mysteries of the biotech and health sectors. Today we're talking to Dr. James Garner, the CEO of cancer drug developer Casia Therapeutics. Uh, welcome, James, and I hope I pronounced the uh, name right there. Tim, that was full marks. Perfect job, and thanks very much for having me. Excellent. Now, Casio has a long history on the stock exchange uh, because it used to be known as Novagen uh, before a change of name and direction. Uh, in fact, it's one of the oldest listed biotechs. Uh, and in the past, Novagen dabbled in things including animal products and health supplements. James joined the company in 2016. And since then, Casio has had a tighter commercial focus, especially on its lead drug candidate, to treat the most common brain cancer, glioblastoma. Now, glioblastoma is a particularly aggressive cancer, uh, and it killed US Republican presidential candidate John McCain. And on the Democrat side, it killed Ted Kennedy and Beau Biden, uh, the son of former Democrat Vice President Joe Biden. So like a lot of cancers, it it doesn't uh, discriminate. Casia also has an ovarian cancer program, And James is here to tell you more about uh, that and the uh, company overall. Uh, So, James, uh, what attracted you to Casia in the first place? Tim, I'm a a doctor by training. My real passion is to try and bring forward new drugs for patients and really make a difference in patients' lives. And that's really guided my career the whole way through. I've worked uh, mostly in big pharma companies, but... Um, but I think over the years, I've, I've seen some things done really well, and I've seen some things done less well. And I've, I've always had this desire to try and put all the best features of drug development into a company to try and build a new organization that, that, uh, that does this really well. And so the opportunity to, to reshape Novagen into Casio just seemed a, a great chance to do that. It was a chance to build a really world-class 21st century drug developer. And, uh, and, and that's the journey we've been on for the last few years. And I, I think it's uh, like, like any of these things, it's taken a lot of unexpected turns, but I think we're all tremendously proud of the organisation that started to emerge. Yeah, great. And James, I believe you had quite a bit of time uh, in uh, hands-on medicine, uh, even on the uh, emergency floor, uh, but you decided you were interested in, in the commercial side of things or an amalgam of the commercial side of things and your uh, medical experience. Tim, that's that's right. And I uh, I practiced medicine for a number of years, and, and a lot of that was spent in the emergency room. So I uh, I often think that no matter how jo- how uh, stressful the job of being a CEO gets, it's really nothing compared to a, a Saturday evening in a in a busy uh, inner city emergency department. Uh, but I I did an MBA. I worked for a few years as a management consultant with a with a firm called Bain and Company. And I I've always had this passion both about the the medicine and the science, but also about the the business and the commerciality of it. And working in this industry has been a fantastic opportunity for me to put those things together because 
really when it's done right, they're complements to each other. You know, a, a business without great science underlining it, uh, underlying it is, is worth nothing. And equally, great science without the, the nous and the, and the uh, ability to take that forward is, is really uh, never going to be a benefit to patients. So, so I think it's been great for, for me to, to be able to find a niche at the intersection of those things. Terrific. Um, and uh, turning to your uh, lead compound, GDC 0084, I, uh, I hope I've uh, got that right. Um, could, could you tell me a bit more about how the uh, company uh, gained the asset in the first place? Tim, we licensed GDC 84 from Genentech. And uh, Genentech, for, for the listeners who aren't familiar with the company, is, is really the most successful cancer drug developer in history. They're now wholly owned by Roche, a Swiss pharmaceutical company, and they generate about $36 billion a year in cancer drug sales alone. So, so these guys are the absolute best in the business. And like every big company, they simply produce more drugs than they have the resources to take forward. And, and Genentech several years ago made a strategic decision that they weren't going to focus their efforts very much on brain cancer for the time being. So long story short, they, they had a promising drug in the form of GDC84. It didn't quite fit with the strategy of their business. And we were able to negotiate a deal to bring it into Casia and to take it forward. And this is really very much how we set out to build Casia. We, we took a view that spending a lot of time in the laboratory is very, very time consuming. It demands a huge amount of capital and it has a very low success rate. So we thought, you know, we, we want to go out and look for good quality drugs that are just a little bit unloved in their parent company. And that's how we, we want to build a pipeline for Casia. So, so this drug just fitted precisely with how we saw our business taking shape. And we've been uh, really proud to be the custodians of the drug ever since. Yeah, so it sounds like it was really a matter of priorities or prioritisation for uh, Genentech. Uh, now, now, do they still have any uh, interest, any uh, financial interest uh, in the uh, drug, uh, for, for example, uh, royalties? Yeah, in a in a in a commercial sense, we do owe Genentech a modest royalty on commercial sales, and uh, and we like that because, frankly, it means that Genentech has an incentive to uh, to to uh, see the drug succeed. Um, Beyond that, I think the scientists who worked in Genentech on, on this project remain incredibly committed to brain cancer, to this drug. We've had terrific support from, uh, from, from a number of the, of the team there. And so we've been enormously grateful for that as well. So both in a, in a formal sense and in an informal, more individual sense, I think we, uh, uh, you know, we, we certainly have a, a really great ongoing relationship there with Genentech. Okay, great. And James, can you outline uh, what the company's doing by way of clinical programs uh, off its own bat, uh, how it's uh, taking the drug forward? Well, Tim, we, we launched a phase two clinical study with GDC84 last year in glioblastoma, which is, as you noted, is, is the most common and the most aggressive form of brain cancer. And we're actually just getting to the really exciting part with that because next month we'll be sharing some initial effic efficacy data out of that study. So, so we're really uh, getting to the point where this starts to, uh, to, to produce some results. So, uh, so, so that's going to be tremendously exciting. 
But uh, along the way, we've also managed to launch four other clinical trials through partnerships with some of the leading cancer hospitals in the United States. Three of those are in uh, cancer that has spread to the brain from other locations. And then the fourth one is in childhood brain cancer, a rare but very aggressive form of childhood brain cancer called DIPG. So we now have five clinical studies going on across the GDC84 program. And that's uh, really a, a very, very broad slate of work. I mean, I think any large pharmaceutical company would be quite, quite proud of the breadth of that program. Uh, but for us, four of those five studies are primarily funded and run by the hospitals that are that are in charge of them. So it's a great kind of leverage opportunity for us. In, in a certain sense, we get five for the price of one. And I think it's a testament to the potential of the drug and the need for new treatments in brain cancer that, um, that we've been able to put in place these, these really innovative but very, uh, very productive partnerships. Well, it's always great to uh, be able to uh, get someone else to uh, to pay uh, in order to sort of spread the uh, always finite uh, resources. With these programs, um, I take it uh, the uh, the cancers that have spread from elsewhere to the brain the metastasized, and I uh, managed to pronounce it right. Uh, is that actually a, a bigger market than the uh, primary brain cancer? It's huge. So, um, so to, to put it in some sort of perspective, glioblastoma in the United States alone is about 12,500 new patients a year, which is you know, a moderate number of patients, but it certainly pales compared to lung cancer or breast cancer. By comparison, the number of new brain metastases patients, i.e. patients who've got brain cancer spread from somewhere else, somewhere in the ballpark of 200,000 patients a year. So uh, really more than a, more than a tenfold difference in, in terms of numbers. Now, the difference is it's a very uh, mixed group. Yeah, it's not really just one group of patients. There's a, probably a real difference between patients with lung cancer that spread to the brain versus, say, breast cancer that spread to the brain. Uh, but it's an enormous opportunity and very, very poorly served by existing treatments. Yes, on that point, I take it there's, there's just not, not much out there or, or, or there is one drug, but it's, but it's not that effective in um, a lot of patients. Is, is that right? Tim, that's ex exactly right. And, uh, and, and across brain cancer, that's a very consistent story. If we look at lung cancer, we've seen something like 20 new drugs approved by the FDA in the last decade, you know, just enormous progress there. Um, melanoma, we've, we've fundamentally changed the outcome for that disease. But in brain cancer, there's really been nothing in the last 10 or or 15 years. And uh, so, so this is just crying out for new treatments. In glioblastoma, there's one drug available. It only works for one third of patients. And in brain mets, by and large, there's no drugs available. Uh, so um, so we, we really, uh, this is an area that really just hasn't improved in terms of the standard of care for, for several decades. And uh, as I say, clinicians and patients are crying out for new treatment options. Yeah, okay. And would you be looking at uh, your drug as a combination therapy uh, with the drugs out there? Not that there are many, as we've just discussed. Tim, it's a, it's a really interesting area. I, th I think long run, 
the treatment of most cancers is going to require multiple drugs used in a, in a, a very, very sophisticated way together. And I think that'll be the case for our drug too. And some of the work we're starting to do, some of these uh, earlier stage studies are starting to explore those combinations. Uh, but I think in the near term, we're going to need to show that the drug works by itself first. I think it's going to need to, to earn its stripes as a monotherapy first. And then I think on the back of that, we'll start to explore combination use. So our current work in glioblastoma is monotherapy, but, but for sure, the long term is, is probably going to involve some, uh, you know, some, some very, very carefully thought out combinations. Right. And uh, James, I should really ask about the uh, mechanism of action. Can you briefly de- describe uh, how the drug works? I mean, I take it the, the key feature is that, is that it crosses this protective blood-brain barrier, which is something uh, no other drug can do, or, 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 or that's pretty much the case. Tim, that's, that's absolutely right. I think what, what's interesting about GDC84, what really attracted us to the drug, is that the, the fundamental mechanism of action is that it switches off a biochemical control mechanism in the cancer called PI3K. The drug is what we call a PI3K inhibitor, and it really just switches, essentially switches off the power to the tumour, if you like. And, uh, and, and the reason why that's important is there are already four FDA-approved PI3K inhibitors. So this is a technology that, in a fundamental sense, we know works. We know that we can treat cancer by doing this. This isn't something that's untested and unproven and speculative. This is, this is mainstream cancer treatment. What sets GDC84 apart, what makes it unique out of all the drugs in this class and really almost, almost across the board in terms of cancer therapies, is the ability to cross the blood-brain barrier, to, to get into the brain. And obviously for treating brain cancer, that's, that's an essential quality. So, uh, so, so GDC84 has this really unusual mix of a very, very well-validated, well-proven, de-risked technology, but a unique differentiating feature that gives it an advantage over any other drug out there. And uh, so, so that really appeals to us. Mm, yeah, terrific. I could see why. Um, and uh, I, I should ask you about the ovarian uh, cancer side. Um, is, is that a uh, is that a secondary program, or um, how, how would you describe it? Tim, we, we've got a drug uh, in development for ovarian cancer called Cantrixel, and uh, it is an earlier stage program than GDC84. It's still in phase one, so it's still really early days for Cantrixel. And, you know, our inclination has been that, that perhaps the longer-term development of that, of that drug would be best accomplished through some sort of partnership with a larger company. And I think that, that probably remains our, uh, our assumption at the moment. Uh, but it, it's certainly been a really interesting time for Cantrexel because we just uh, just very recently announced data at the ESMO conference, the European Society of Medical Oncology, from the ongoing phase one study that showed some really clear signals of efficacy. We, we saw several patients with tumor shrinkage, what we call a partial response, and, uh, and we saw evidence that on average, this was uh, slowing the progression of the cancer for these really very, very advanced ovarian cancer patients. So, 
so we're getting some good data out of Cantrexel, and uh, and I think we'll be watching this really carefully. There's still a few months to go before the study completes, and uh, I think once it does, we plan to sit down with our advisors and, and with the clinicians and work out where to next. Uh, but I think it's fair to say this has been a very positive uh, surprise in some ways so far, and uh, and I think really uh, really opens up some options for how best to take Cantrexel forward. Okay, great. And speaking of positive surprises, uh, I mean, I mean, what, what what should investors look out for? I noticed your your share price uh, had a had a strong run in uh, September. It's up about fifty uh, percent on the month. So I presume that uh, investors are maybe anticipating those uh, phase two uh, uh, trial results for for the brain cancer drug. Tim, I, th- I think that's right. I think we've we've seen a few things going on at the moment. I think partly just investors are starting to cotton on to the story in a general sense. You know, it takes a little while for people just to become familiar with Casio and understand what it is and, and what we're doing. Uh, despite the the heritage you mentioned, you know, we we are for practical purposes really a new company, and uh, and so it takes people a little while just to just to understand what we're now doing. Um, there is definitely some anticipation around data. You know, we we really have significant data readouts almost on a monthly basis looking ahead over the next four or six months and uh, you know really clinical trial data is is what builds value for, for a pre-revenue drug company so um, so I, I think investors clearly the, the smart investors are, are anticipating that and, and starting to, uh, uh, to to look at it and I think it's also finally fair to say we, we did have in the middle of the year you know one or two uh, sort of moderately substantial holders that were sort of unwind positions on the open market that probably temporarily suppressed the share price a little bit and I think we've we've bounced back a little bit since then and so I think some of this is is frankly almost reversion to the mean in a way it's just the the share price sort of bouncing back to some sort of natural level so I think all those things have have, uh, have, have helped us out in the last month or two and um and, and hopefully provided some uh, some real encouragement to investors about the direction the company's heading Okay, great. Um, and I believe you recently won a gong as a as, as a company. Uh, t- tell me about that, James. <laughs> we uh, it, it was uh, it was a night to be remembered, Tim. We uh, we were an inaugural recipient of the uh, Trans Tasman Innovation and Growth Award, which is run okay. by the uh, Australian New Zealand Leadership Forum. And this is a, a very uh, uh, senior gathering of, of uh, business leaders from both sides of the Tasman, and uh, they uh, they launched this award to recognise some of the most innovative companies in Australia and New Zealand. And we were, of course, enormously flattered to, to be uh, an inaugural winner of the award. Uh, we uh, we were flown over to Auckland for the awards ceremony as a dinner of about four hundred senior business leaders in Auckland. It was presented by the New Zealand Prime Minister uh, Jacinda Ardern and by the Australian Australian Federal Trade Minister Simon Birmingham. So, uh, a, a really, uh, really wonderful evening for us. I think, um, uh, you know, what what drives us in a company like Casio is ultimately the difference we can make to patients. But along the way, this sort of recognition just just really helps everybody in the team to uh, to feel that we're on the right track. So, uh, so it means a lot to us, and we're we're really proud of uh, proud of the award. Oh, that's great. It sounds like it was the uh, night of night. So uh, who needs the uh, Brownlow medal? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, uh, it was certainly almost as glamorous. 
<laughs> Great. <laughs> and finally, uh, James, I've uh, I've got to ask you this: uh, d- Does Kazia uh, really mean uh, cinnamon tree in uh, in Hebrew? <laughs> uh, that, that, that's what Google told me, anyway. Well, Timo, we uh, we spent a long time trying to decide what to call the business. We we went through any number of possibilities, and and our lawyers shot down almost every one of them because they violated somebody's trademark somewhere. So, so strictly speaking, Kazia is a, a neologism. It's a new word. It's it's made up specially for us. Uh, it does uh, our our. Our branding consultants will tell you that it evokes the cinnamon tree, the, the cassia tree, which has been used as a traditional remedy. And it also alludes to the Japanese word kaizen, which means continuous improvement. But look, in all honesty, uh, I think the reality is that, that the company is a blank slate. Kaizen is going to mean what we make it mean. It's going to uh, it's going to take on the meaning that we give it by the work that we do. And and, and I think we're really happy with that. I think the responsibility is, is, is on us to make this a word that people recognize and remember and respect. And, uh, and, and that's the challenge that all of us have embraced. Right. Well, it sounds like whatever the name, you've got a busy uh, slate of uh, clinical programs and partnerships and showing a, a, a lot of promise. So um, good luck with it all, uh, James, and, and thanks for uh, talking. It's been a pleasure. Tim, likewise. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, thanks. Thanks.